Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. They've been longing to get out of the slavery, a longing to be free from bondage, and God miraculously has come through for them and delivered them out of the place of the worst nightmare that they could ever imagine. And God has a mediator that, that is working on his behalf, that, God, that is God's mouthpiece, that is God's instrument. His name is Moses. And Moses is leading God's people out as God is instructing Moses. And so what we find out through the story, if you were trekking with us, um, what, what we'll find out is this, is that throughout the whole time in the book of Exodus, uh, um, God is showing himself strong. And every time they get to a place that seems impossible, God comes through in the clutch for his people. Every time they get to a place where it looks like they cannot get themselves out of the situation, God comes through and get them out of the situation. They find themselves in another situation. And guess what God does? Gets them out of another situation. I'm starting to think that that's what our life is like. Every time we get ourselves in some, God pulls us right back out of it, right? And God is leading them. He's leading them through. Miraculously, God is leaving no mistake. He's, he's saving them beyond a reasonable doubt because he wants to save them in such a way that they will look at what God is doing and say, you know, what? we could, not, not, could have not done that ourselves. It is by God's grace alone that we've been saved. And so Exodus, if I have to paint a theme, it is God with us because God is with his people. But, but even a greater theme is that the people are saved, but they're not just saved to be saved. They are saved for the glory of God. Can I suggest to you that God has saved you, that God has brought you out of some stuff, that God has rescued you uh, out of things in your life when you got in situations where you couldn't get yourself out of. God saved you not because you were good, but God saved you because he was good. God saved you because he was good because he wanted you to give him the glory. So, so that, that's, my, that's my catching you up and giving you a synopsis of where we are in the movie. All right? And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn me today to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to look at the first seven verses. The first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. The first seven verses. It's seven verses. Last week we had like 300 verses. Uh, this, this week we got seven verses, and so I'm, last week I preached for four hours. This week I'm only going to do three and a half. And every visitor just said, I think I made the wrong decision today. I think I came to the wrong church. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And here's what it says. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin. Now, this word sin has no correlation to sin as we know it, spiritual sin, but it's just called the wilderness of sin. They moved from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. I want to say that again. They moved from one place to the next, not of their own accord, but they moved from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. If you were here last week, God also led the people, and guess where God led the people last week? To a place where there was no water. And this week, again, as they go further into the wilderness, God again leads them to a place where there is no water. So they camped at the Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses. Notice they don't make a request. They complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Give us water to drink. Now, I don't want you to imagine that's three or four people yelling at Moses, give us something to drink. According to scholars, the Exodus doesn't have a couple of people. There's several hundred 
thousands of people in the Exodus. Several hundred thousands of people, not including children. So, so there's somewhere roughly around 600,000 to a million people journeying through the wilderness together, and God's responsible to take care of all these people, but they got one leader, and his name is Moses. So they're yelling at this one dude. I want you to imagine 600,000 people yelling at you. You don't like one person yelling at you. Now imagine 600,000. And Moses says something so profound to them. Moses says something so brilliant. He says, why are you complaining to me? Why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord? Moses essentially says, I ain't got nothing to do with this. Then Moses, actually the people thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses, and they said to Moses, why did you ever bring us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, what? Dude, you got to do something about these people. Well, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. In, in a little while, these people are literally going to kill me. And the Lord answered, Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. And I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, Water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, God. I thank you for this gathering of your people. Lord, my prayer today is that we would see you in a whole new light. I pray today, God, that we would be transformed by your word, God. And so, Lord, I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would just move in our hearts and that the Holy Spirit would convict us where we need convicting and he would encourage us where we need encouraging. Lord, I pray today um, that, that today will, will mark a fork in the road for some of us, God, where we will make a decision, a hard decision, God, that we will follow after you, God, no matter what it costs us, Father. And so, Father, I thank, I thank you today that, that we can study your word. I thank you that you've spoken to your people through your word. And I just pray that ultimately your son Jesus would be glorified today. I pray that he would be made known today. I pray that today we would fall in love with Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, to gather together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, God with us, I just want to put a title on this sermon called Stuck Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Stuck Between a Rock and a Hard Place. When I said that, some of you were like, ooh. Have you ever been stuck between a rock and a hard place before? You, you ever been in a situation where you like, this is it. I'm not going to be able to make it out of this one. Every, everybody's been in a situation where they felt like they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Stuck in a place that they didn't want to be, but they didn't have what it took to get out of the situation. Everybody's been there at some point in your life, and miraculously, you are sitting here today as evidence that something or someone got you out of the situation. And so in this particular text today, the Lord is leading the Israelites from Egypt, the place of bondage, the place of slavery that they were for over 400 years. When you think of Egypt and you relate it to us, I want you to think of Egypt, the place of bondage, 
as also the place of sin where, where we've been in bondage and enslaved to our sin. And then there's an exodus that takes place. God brings them out the same way that God has saved us through his son Jesus. We have exited from the darkness of sin and being enslaved to sin to now having found forgiveness and peace and joy and salvation in Christ Jesus. And so he's leading them from the place of Egypt into the wilderness. But, but there's an ultimate destination. That ultimate destination is a place called Canaan. Canaan is, is affectionately known as the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. This is where he's taking them, where they will go and they will be a blessed people and they won't have to toil anymore. They will be with God and God will be with them. They'll be in relationship with God. This is where they're ultimately heading. This is where God is taking them. But before he takes them there, God takes them through the wilderness. And if you're asking, if you haven't been here, is there a direct route from Egypt right to Canaan? Yeah, of course there's a direct route. But God, if you've been here for a couple weeks, you know that God don't do direct routes. God doesn't do direct routes. God doesn't take anyone anywhere, immediately take them there. God, God always has this connecting place. Don't, don't you hate connecting flights? God always has these connecting places, but God is taking them through the wilderness. And even before they get to Canaan, they're going to another place that will be monumental for them called Mount Sinai. And that is where God will, will give them the rules of relationship or the rules of engagement on how they are to be in the relationship with them. Those rules, you know them as the Ten Commandments. But before God takes them to Canaan, before God takes them to Mount Sinai, God is taking them further into the wilderness. But God is taking them in the wilderness on purpose. And when you think of wilderness, I, I want you to also think of waiting because, because they can't go straight there, so they have to wait. And there's nothing that they can do about it. And so they, they are in this place where they're journeying through the wilderness and God is with them. God's presence is leading them through the wilderness and they have Moses who is a mediator between them and God. Moses serves as a type of Christ who is a mediator between man and God. And this is the role that Moses is serving. He's a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to come and do. And so these people are, are journeying through this wilderness, but the wilderness, let me tell you this, the wilderness is a picture of the Christian life. It is a picture of a life of following Jesus. The wilderness can be hard sometimes. The wilderness can have trials at times, but let me tell you this, the wilderness is not meant to punish you, but it's meant to prepare you. So they're going through the wilderness. If you find yourself going through this Christian life and it is harder than you've imagined. Matter of fact, if it's, it's harder in the Christian life than it was before you got saved. The prosperity preacher told you if you would just name it and claim it, if you would just speak it and declare it, if you would just manifest it, life would be easy and all of your dreams will come true. But you found out that that doesn't actually work. That, that going through the Christian life is hard. But the great promise is that God is with us. And so God is bringing them through the wilderness to prepare them for where they are going. He, he has taken them out of Egypt, but the problem is Egypt ain't out of them. And so he's, he's trying to prepare them, and he's preparing them by testing them. And the reason that he's testing them is to sanctify them. He's trying to wean them off of all the, the independence that they had. He's trying to wean them off of all the self-sufficiency that they had. And he's trying to uh, bring them closer to him so that they cannot be self-sufficient, but that they can be God-dependent. This is what he's doing. He, he's trying to wean them off of all of their earthly dependence and all the things that they depended on in their earthly life. And so I want to give you this, that, that they are now in a test. God has brought them in the wilderness to test them. God has brought them in the wilderness to test them. But the test is designed to teach the people to trust. 
Let me say that again. The test is designed to teach the people to trust. And if you're going through something right now and it feels like a test, I want to suggest to you that God is using the test to teach you to trust. Matter of fact, God is testing you to teach you how to trust him. God is teaching you to trust him. And sometimes the way that God teaches us to trust him is to get us in a place where we're in a situation where nobody could help us but him. And this is where they are. And this is what the Christian life looks like. On our pilgrimage through this Christian journey until Christ returns, we will be in this wilderness. We are learning through our Christian life that the only trustworthy and dependable thing in this life is Jesus. We find ourselves in situations sometimes that we have no control over, situations that are uncertain, situations that are difficult, situations that we can't buy our way out of or network our way into. We find ourselves in these situations that seem too hard or too heavy for us to take the burden on. Sometimes God will lead us into situations that seems downright impossible. Even if you are suffering, I want to tell you something, that if God has brought you to a situation or God has led you somewhere, God is doing something in the middle of it. I want to tell you that God is not taking you somewhere with no purpose. God is not taking you somewhere just, just aimless, just got you out there wondering. God is trying to teach you something. God is doing this on purpose. If you find yourself in a situation where you are stuck and there's nothing that you can do about it, that is the perfect opportunity that God is going to use to get the glory out of your life. That's what he's going to do. And so God wants to get the glory out of what they're going through. That, that, that won't mean anything to them if they don't trust him first. Doesn't mean anything they don't trust. God is leading them to Mount Sinai because God wants to bring them closer to a relationship with them. You know, there are two things that people would say that are most important to a fruitful and flourishing relationship. There are two things. Um, women would say number one is communication. Communication, if you just communicate better, but I want to suggest that there are two. And those two are, are trust and communication. And here's what Jesus is doing. Before he gives them these life-changing words at the Ten Commandments, if there's not trust there first, then the words won't mean anything to them. And so he needs to establish trust before he gives them the revelation and the relationship. And so God wants them to trust him before he communicates with them. Right, right. God is trying to establish that. And this is so vital to their relationship with God. It, it makes so much sense for God to do this if we take it in the context of where God is taking them. Later on in Exodus chapter 19, he will tell them, you are my treasure possession among all the people of the earth. For you are mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They are God's prized possession. They're his treasured people, but they won't realize that if they don't trust him first. And so at Mount Sinai, God will deliver to them the Ten Commandments, but before they hear these significant words that will change the course of history, they need to trust God. They need to realize that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And so now, now I hope that makes sense to you. Before he gives them the Ten Commandments, the rules of the relationship, how to be in a fruitful relationship with him, he first has to establish his trust. And the way that he's establishing trust is to bring them in the wilderness and keep bringing them to places where they have nowhere to turn but him, and then God keeps coming through for them. And so when God keeps doing that, ideally a person would trust God. And then they can be in a relationship and God communicate with them. And so this is what's happening. And so this is why it's important for us to have a relationship with God, a trusting relationship with God. If not, we will see the commandments how the world sees them. They will always, God's commands will always look like hard rules, absence of a relationship. God's commands will always look like hard rules absent of a relationship. But if you're in a relationship with him first, you know that these aren't hard rules that he's meant to kill you, but these are rules so that we can be fruitful and flourish in a relationship with him. I said this last week, we look at the Ten Commandments. He's telling them, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. None of those. Imagine if we lived in a world where everybody followed these ten. You can leave your doors unlocked at night. You can leave your valuables in the car. Ladies, you can put that Louis right there in the passenger seat. Right? If we're following these, we would all flourish. There would be no divorce. That there would be no jails because we'd all be flourishing. So when God does these, they ain't just rules. God is teaching us how to flourish as a people. But they look like hard rules, absent of a relationship. And so, the test is laid before the people of God. They can either see the wilderness, and I thank Dr. Bruce Walker for this Old Testament scholar. I don't read anything Old Testament Without checking with Dr. Bruce Walkie first, 91-year-old Dr. Bruce Walkie suggests that the test that is laid before them was to see if the wilderness was a route of promise on the way to the land, or they could see the wilderness as an unbearable place to be avoided so that they can go back to Egypt. So either it is the way and the route to the promised land where they will flourish and be in a relationship with God or they will perceive the wilderness as an unbearable place only making them long to go back to Egypt. And maybe that's where you are today. You're following Jesus and now you're thinking either I can keep going this hard route with Jesus in this wilderness or I can go back to Egypt, where I was enslaved, but at least I was comfortable. At least I knew what I could depend on. At least I knew what my routine was. You know how they say curiosity kills the cat? I think comfort kills the cat. And so this is the option that they're left with. Either see the... See the wilderness from the perspective of this is just the route to the promise. It, it is the route to promise, or it is the route in which it is unbearable, and I long to go back to Egypt. I miss going to the club with my friends. I miss that ex-boyfriend. I know they told me he wasn't any good for me, but I was so comfortable there. And now this life with God is a life where I have to be God-dependent. And this is what is before them. 
But here's what I want to tell you. Even if this route is hard, even the route of wilderness, if, even if the route of wilderness is hard and there's challenges and there's struggles and there's suffering and there's heartbreak and there's setbacks and there's disappointments and there's all of that stuff, on this road in, in the wilderness, if you are following Jesus, I like to think that at one point we will get to where Paul says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Meaning that everything that we experience on this, in this life with God, on this road to salvation, everything we experience, every heartbreak, every setback, will pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed at his coming. It will all be worth it one day. But in the meantime, you got to trust. And so, one road seems easier and it leads to destruction. The other road is hard, but it leads to life. And so here's the interesting thing. We look at verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. So here's what you need to know. They have the greatest assurance that they could ever have. God is leading them. God is leading them. There's a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night that is leading the people. They have God's visible presence overhead leading them. He's standing right there so they can see God's presence with them. They see this wherever they are. God's presence is right there with them. And if God is leading them, then God is with them. And so, so God is leading. If God is leading them, then why would God lead you to a place to kill you when he just brought you out and saved you? Why, why would God bring you to a place to do more damage here than was done to you in Egypt? And so in this case, Although God is with them, God leads them, and God leads them to a place where there's lack of a bare essential. God leads them again to a place where there is no water. I don't know why God keeps leading these people to a place where there's no water. They think that God is trying to kill them. No, no, they think Moses is trying to kill them, actually. And he keeps leading them to a place where there's no water. And, and, and they have a legitimate concern. We, we see these people fussing at Moses or complaining. We, 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 we see them and we're like, man, they just shut up. God is going to come through for them. But I told you, it's somewhere between 600,000 to a million people in the wilderness together. They have a legitimate concern. It is a lot of people. There are children there. There are livestock there. And they've all come to a place where they have a real need and a real necessity. They actually need water to survive. Their animals are probably starting to get sick. I want you to imagine hundreds of thousands of babies crying and screaming. And here's how I know you can handle that, because some of y'all don't want to work in children's ministry. <laughs> Pastor, I would do anything but that. Right? And, and so I want you to imagine all of these babies screaming at the same time. Parents are getting angry. These people, livestock, who they depend on to live, are getting weak and famished because they need water. I, I researched. I did some research. I did some research. I did some research. I didn't know how long a person could survive without water. If you'd asked me before today, I would have thought a long time. 
But studies have shown that a person can only go about three to five days without any water. Before that, your kidneys start to shut down. You start to dehydrate. You're on your way to death. Did you know that you can survive without food longer than you can survive without water? Y'all scientists, y'all know that y'all smart. I didn't know this. I, I didn't know this. I, didn't, I don't watch, the, I don't watch the, the geography channel or whatever channel that talks about the human net. I don't watch none of that stuff. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know. Y'all are smart. So, so they are in a critical situation. If only because the babies are crying. Give us water to drink because we need water to live. Even if we find ourselves in situations that are less than ideal or downright painful, which they are find themselves in, and they are, they are yelling and arguing and screaming and grumbling at Moses, here's the problem. It's not that they don't have a real issue. It's that they have an attitude behind their real issue. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter what happens to you in life, even if you don't see it coming, even if it knocks you off your feet, even if it causes you a setback, here's what you need to know. God still expects us to manage those hard seasons well. How will God get glory out of your life in front of a lost world if you as a Christian who has the only hope in the world can't handle misfortune properly. I want to say this for a second. God expects us to steward our lives well. God doesn't expect you to just go through life and have peace and have joy and handle things well when you got a pocket full of money. God doesn't expect you to just be stewarding things well when your health is good or your relationship seems like it's on the right track or it's fruitful. God wants us to steward every single season of our lives really well so that he can get the glory out of wherever we are. If you find yourself, I say this every week because I know it's true, if you find yourself in a job that you just can't take it, God says steward it well. If your marriage is difficult, steward it well. If your kids are making you insane in the membrane, Steward it well. If you got multiple kids and they are going crazy and you hear the DMX song, y'all about to make me lose my mind. Up in here, up in here. Steward it well. If you're at your church and you're not feeling it in a season, this season like you were feeling it last season. God says, steward it well. This is what he expects from them. And so God is providing them a prime opportunity for them to demonstrate maturity by how they handle what they can't control. Are y'all with me? And so they're in this situation. The real question now is not what God is going to do, it's what they're going to do. We know what God is going to do. God is going to be God. So, but, but how are they going to handle the situation where they lack? the very thing that they think they need. Are they going to handle it the way that they handled it before? I think it's interesting that God brings them to water, a place with no water twice. Last week, he brought them to a place with no food and no water. And what did the people do? They grumbled and complained. And God, by his grace, gave them food and water. 
Now here they are again, a second time to pass the first test. You know, if you didn't pass the college entrance exam, if you didn't do well on the SAT the first time, and you didn't study the second time, I'm not mad at you that you didn't get in college. Because you had an opportunity to get it right the second time. And here it is, God, bring... Have you noticed that sometimes God will bring you to the same situation again? That he delivered you out before? To see if you'll handle it right the second time? That's not, God, that's not God's punishment. That's God's grace. And here they are. And we have to see how they're going to respond. Will they resent? Will they be bitter? Or will they blame? Well, we don't even have to go to commercial break to figure out what happens next. Verses 2 and 3. So the people complained to Moses. I'm sorry. So the people blessed God and said, Moses, we believe that God is going to bring us water. The people said, so the people told Moses, we trust God. Now the people complained to Moses, give us water. And Moses was like, what, what, what do I have to do with this? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you ever free us? Why did you ever even save us? If you were going to save us and bring us out and bring us out and life wasn't going to be easy for us. Jesus, you could have left me where I was. Why did you save our family and still allow one of us to get sick and die? Jesus, why did you save us? We served you faithfully. And we lost our child. Jesus, that matriarch of our family served you with their whole life. And they died of this terminal illness. Why did you save us if it was going to be like this? And here we find the people making another critical mistake just in a different place. God gave them a second chance to handle it well. They complained the initial time in the wilderness of sin, right before they got here. They complained. They complained against Moses. And Moses is just like, I'm the mediator and the messenger. Moses is like, what do I have to do with this? But you know what I realized? Moses was just an easy target for the people. Moses, Moses was an eager, easy target for the people's frustrations with their own lives. Well, what appears to be just some basic complaining has now reached a lethal, a lethal fever pitch. The people are actually not just complaining. They're bringing a charge against Moses. And what are they in charge of Moses of? Attempted murder. They're literally charging Moses with attempted homicide. They, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us and our children. That, that's a serious charge. This is not just complaining. This is an all-out protest that the people have, so much so that Moses fears that the people are going to execute justice against him by stoning him to death. Because back in those days, the death penalty was by stoning. And so this is what's happening in the text. And Moses reminds them, I'm not the one you should be complaining about. I didn't lead you into the wilderness. God did. 
I was not the one who led you to two places with no water. God did. So if you feel like you want to stone somebody, y'all see where I'm going with this. If you want to take a rock and stone somebody, if you're going to smite somebody, I ain't the one who you should be smiting. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move out of the way and allow nothing but space and opportunity with the real person that you have an issue with, but the real person you have an issue with ain't me. Now this causes a whole different kind of problems. And if I'm the Israelites, I'm reconsidering the charges that I'm bringing. Because, see, I can throw rocks at Moses, but my arms are too short to box with God. They, they, they literally are bringing a charge. What, what they're doing is putting what they think is Moses to the test. No, they're putting God to the test. But God don't need to be tested. He, he is reliable. He don't need to establish anything. God, God is who God is. But we get to this theme again of them complaining. And let me tell you what complaining is or grumbling is by definition if you weren't here last week. It is a frame of mind in which one believes that in difficult circumstances, God is insufficient. It is a frame of complaining, complaining, complaining. It is a frame of mind in which one believes that in difficulties, God is insufficient. But what's crazy is, why would they test the Lord? Why would they grumble? Why would they complain? God sent these plagues against the Egyptians to set them free. Through the Passover, he spared their lives. Through the parting of the Red Sea, they walked through on dry ground without being drowned. Through God making bitter water sweet in the last season. Through God giving them bread to eat where there was no food. God has done all of these things and proved himself that he was God. And they still complain. How do you still complain when you just saw what God was doing? How are you still complaining? When you complained the last season, God came to the rescue and you're complaining about the same thing. It was just a week ago. But you know what I realized? These people ain't stupid. They know who God is. But they realize something. If we complain the first time, it might work again. Even if it was wrong, God got us out of it. So let us do this complaining thing again and see if it works. He moved real fast the last time. Let's see if he can do it again this time. And that's funny to us, but what we don't realize is there's something very sinister at the bottom of that. They are trying to manipulate God. They are manipulating God. How many, how many times has God brought us through something and we knew he was going to do it? And we just did the same thing again. You know you've prayed that prayer. You're about to do something. God, forgive me in advance for what I'm about to do. Be honest. Just keep it real. Wait, just go ahead and put your hand. Um, it's me, Pastor. You talk, you, I, it's me. I did that before. This is what they're doing. They are being trifling in the wilderness. <laughs> trifling in the wilderness. They are charging God with murder and manipulation at the same time. Their manipulation was just a result of their impatience. 
And herein lies the greatest problem of our generation. We manipulate God at times because we're impatient. And we think that God should bring us somewhere quicker than he has. And so Moses says, you're testing God. They were literally refusing to wait for God to take care of them. This was not a matter if God could do it for them. It was a matter of God is taking too long to give me what I asked for. And so they're testing God. What does it mean to test God? Demanding or expecting him to do something special for you, something that you don't necessarily deserve. Which in this case, the sin was in demanding that God speed up his timeline in their lives. Not to test to see if God is loyal or if God would do what he promised, but to get something out of God earlier than he intended to give it to them. Oh, this is so good because this is so real for us. Our problem in our generation is that we cannot wait. And essentially what they're saying is from God's vantage point, ultimately it boils down to thinking that I could have or should have done a better job of providing for your needs. God, you're not handling this right. God, you need to move faster. God, you are not doing a good job at being God. So they have placed themselves as judge over God, and now he is on trial. He brought them in the wilderness to test him. Now they've turned the tables and are testing God. But let me tell you something. God can't be tested. Yes, God God encourages us. Come to God with your fears, with your doubts, with your needs. Come to him in prayer. Asking, not demanding. Y'all know what it's like. You ever been in Toys R Us? I don't think they have Toys R Us anymore. These kids these days shop online. Sorry. Back in the day, there was a Walmart for kids. It was called Toys R Us. I remember Toys R Us. And, 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 and have you ever been in Toys R Us and you see the kid in the aisle and they fall out on the floor, kicking and screaming, because they want the rock'em sock'em robot. Have you ever seen this happen? These kids just fall out, and you look in there like, oh my God. You ducking because you with your mama, and you already know how it is over here. So you're like, oh, it's just only a matter of time. And they don't do nothing. Little Billy just keeps to get on, keep on screaming, and he gets what he wants. And you're like, oh, oh, oh no, oh no, I would never do that. You get scared that your mama's going to see it and she's going to hit you. (laughs) Because of the ridiculous nature of the tantrum that the child is throwing. Crazy child, you're in Toys R Us. You are in Toys R Us throwing a temper tantrum. Y'all missing it. You are in the toy store. You are in the place with the person who can give you what you need. And you're still throwing a temper tantrum. Somebody help me. You're in Toys R Us. And the person who can give you what you need is right there. All you need to do is be quiet and wait. No parent brings their child into Toys R Us just to look. (laughs) 
So I'm going to get out of my bed, put on good clothes, to drive you on my day off to the toy store for us to look. But this is us. And this is one of the great sins of our day, impatience. But beneath that impatience is unbelief. Our impatience with God is rooted in our unbelief. We don't believe that God is who he said he is in spite of the evidence that he has shown us. This is not just for believers. This is also for unbelievers. Unbelievers every day look at God's vast creation that is obvious. They breathe God's good air, drink God's good clean water, eat God's good food, fly in God's air on an airplane from one part of his creation to the other, swim in God's clear ocean, bathe in God's sun on the beach, fish in God's lakes and eat God's fish, hike and climb on God's mountain, experience God's blessings of marriage and God's blessings of childbirth and God's blessings of vacation and God's blessings of retirement because God also reigns on the just and on the unjust and still not believe and trust him, although they experience his goodness. And we as believers on the flip side have experienced the life-changing, transforming nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've experienced God's love, God's joy, his peace in spite of life circumstances. We receive forgiveness through his son and still respond with unbelief, even if God is just taking 10 seconds longer than we anticipated. It's just too much for us. And it is the trick of Satan if God's delay moves us to unbelief and a lack of trust that will eventually cause us to to attempt to manipulate God for our own advantage. But this story ain't just some random story. Our Lord was led by God, by the Spirit of God, to be tested also in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And guess what? He faced hunger as well. But thank God where we fail, Jesus has succeeded on our behalf. Matthew 4 and 7, when, the, when Satan is talking to Jesus and he takes him up to a pinnacle and he tells Jesus, throw yourself down from here. And he quotes scripture that God will come through for you in the clutch and get you down. Jesus said to him, looking back to Israel in the wilderness if it is also written do not test the Lord your God Jesus got the point that Satan is trying to convince him to force God's hand he's trying to make God do something outside of God's timing if Jesus threw himself down just to appease Satan Jesus knew that God was fully capable of rescuing him out of the situation and that he would be demonstrating a lack of trust in God if he jumped too soon proving that he doubted God or that God had the competence or faithfulness to come rescue him You know what Jesus did? He trusted God without testing God. He realized that Satan is making an attempt to put a wedge in a relationship between Jesus and his father. And Jesus is having none of it. But Jesus succeeds where we fail. Thank God for the gracious gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. That he has stood in our place that he lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve to die. It is the grace of God that would send his son to incur the judgment that I deserve so that his son could supply my need. So how does God respond to people who keep on complaining? God responds how he always responds, with grace. 
I would make a horrible God. Because if you keep complaining to me after I've done all of this stuff, I've sent some plagues on your enemies, got rid of people for you, killed your enemy in the Red Sea, made sure you walked through on dry ground and didn't get any part of your clothing wet, brought your children through too. If I made a bitter water sweet, if I gave you bread where there was no food, if I've done all of this to you and you still got the nerve to complain, your story ends here. That's, that's who we are. But thank God for God. Thank God for his grace and thank God for his mercy that when other people would have got tired of us and threw us away, God is right here to, pr- to provide for us and supply all of our needs. Verses 5 through 6 says this, and the Lord answered Moses. He doesn't even address the people's complaint. Go on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Mount Horeb. That is so important. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. I'm going to stand there in front of you at the rock of Horeb. They want to stone Moses. They want to strike Moses. God says, just go on to the rock. I'm going to stand there in front of the rock. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hit the rock. And when you hit the rock, water's going to come out of the rock and the people will drink. So Moses, since they're going to stone you to death, really they want to stone me. So take your staff and your rock, the rock at Horeb, a dry place, a desolate place, a place where there is no water, where there's inconceivable, it's inconceivable that they will find water. I'm going to stand right there in front of you. And although they are sinful people and they deserve death for, for, for charging me falsely, they deserve death and they deserve a penalty for the false charges that they brought against me. Instead of judging them for their sins, especially for their unbelief, I'm going to submit myself to my own judgment so that they can live I hope you see what's happening in this text so when you strike the rock what they really need to give them life is going to come out and out of that rock will flow water that will give them life and so I'm not only going to take on the judgment they deserve I'm going to become what they need so that's when the scriptures say in Psalm 18 and 2 the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Make sense now? My God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Psalm 95 and 1 says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the roar of the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Because a rock is a symbol of God and his salvation for us. So the people want to stone Moses but really they want to stone God. And God, through his grace, says, wait a minute. I'm going to go to the rock, and I'm going to stand there in front of the rock. And I want you to strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, something's going to flow out of that rock that will give them life. And so this is for us. So much so that when Paul writes about this same thing to the church at Corinth who are dealing with idolatry, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, and I'm almost done. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. 
they all passed through the sea, representing the Red Sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, but they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock, that rock that was struck, that rock that was smitten, that rock was Christ. And so God sent his son into the world, and the people did to him what the Israelites wanted to do to Moses. He was put on trial the same way they wanted to put Moses on trial. And instead of being stoned, he was crucified on the cross. And there was not only blood that came out of Jesus' side, but there was also water that came out of Jesus' side. The blood was for the forgiveness of sins. The water was proof that through death came life. And so Jesus stands in our place. I told you Moses at the outset, I don't say nothing for no reason. Moses was the mediator, and Moses is a precursor to Jesus. So when Moses fell, Jesus comes, and he's the greater Moses. And so he takes on the punishment that Moses couldn't take on himself. And so when Jesus meets this woman at the well who had some relationship issues of her own, who's picked bad several times, who's lifeless. Jesus comes to this woman at the well, and he says in John 4 and 14, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for in him eternal life. Jesus is our rock. He's our salvation. And God is so gracious that when we want to judge him and we should die for it, he submits himself to his own judgment and stands in our place and he gives us what we need. That's amazing. And Moses says, and I'm done, he named the place Massah and Mirabah, because the Israelites complained, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us? And here's what is happening. Their bad attitude, their mismanagement of what God was doing overshadowed God's gracious act of salvation. It overshadowed it. When they should have been praising, they were complaining. When they should have been grateful, they were grumbling. But I want to tell you what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors, this is God speaking, where your ancestors tested me. They tried it. I I said that. He didn't say that. They tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said they will always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. You know what happened to this generation in the wilderness out of all of those hundreds of thousands of people? Only two people over the age of 20 made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Moses didn't even make it in. What was the sin? Complaining. being ungrateful for God's grace. They mismanaged what God was doing for them in the wilderness. And this serves as a lesson for you and I. The road in the wilderness may be hard, 
but it's worth it. And God has provided a way for you to experience life. But it's only found in his son. You know what? I realize sometimes being stuck between a rock and a hard place is the best thing that could ever happen to us. What if I suggest to you that rock bottom ain't that bad? That right there in that place, when you are at the breaking point, when there is no way out, when there is nothing that you can do about your situation, when there's nothing you can do to change anything about the outcome that you're experiencing. What, 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 what if I told you that at rock bottom was a place that God was waiting for you to get all along where you were helpless, hopeless, and he comes in to do what God always does, save his people. Maybe God brings us to a rock in a hard place so that we will realize that only God can save us. But we won't realize that unless we trust him. So this is an invitation to trust. Unfortunately for them, because of the hardness of the season they were in, they didn't just complain. They actually had contempt for God. They had a hatred for God. Because they didn't think that they should ever have to be in a situation where there was lack. God, how dare you bring me to this? And God's response is, I'm God. But if I'm bringing you there, I'm bringing you there on purpose. The test is not meant to kill you. It's to prepare you. The test is simply designed for us to trust. The test is teaching us to trust. And the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to look back and see that God provides for and takes care of his people. The gospel also gives us hope in the present that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.